Hey everyone, this is Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to Untold Stories. This is a show where we dive deep into the lives and personal histories of some of crypto's most influential leaders and find out how the crypto movement truly came to be. Let's dive in. In this episode of Untold Stories, we're talking to Vinny Lingham, and it was such a great episode because Vinny was so integral in the mass adoption of Bitcoin going back to 2012 and 2013, it was really interesting to see his opinion. We talked about how Bitcoin could collapse the world economy and be banned forever. But don't worry, because it's always good to talk about some of these crazier, different ideas and thoughts. As the founder of GIFT, that's spelled G-Y-F-T, he shared how allowing gift cards purchases using Bitcoin gave him deep metrics and insights into the usage and movements of Bitcoin. This is back in like 2012. Vinny and I also discussed how his creation of Civic affects privacy and what is the difference between privacy and anonymity. Vinny explained it really well. We talked about his critical points on entrepreneurship, grit, and how to be successful over the competition. Lastly, Vinny gives his prediction for Bitcoin in 2020 and beyond. This is such a great episode. Vinny was an integral part and still is of mass adoption with Bitcoin. He's controversial in his opinions, but he's super smart and worth listening to. Enjoy the episode. How do you actually live your life on crypto? How do you spend Bitcoin? How do you live and actually help continue to grow this ecosystem? Since 2016, so for over three years, I've been personally using the BitPay prepaid Visa card, and it's amazing. So check it out at bitpay.com forward slash card. That's bitpay.com forward slash card. You can also buy gift cards from over a dozen merchants in the app itself. So it's pretty easy. You get the card in the mail, you activate it, you download the app, you send some Bitcoin to the app and you load the card into dollars with your Bitcoin and then spend it. It's so easy, it's so convenient and I've been using it for a few years. Check it out, bitpay.com forward slash card. I'm super excited to share that we're now working with BitPanda here at Untold Stories. BitPanda is the leading European platform for investing in digital assets like Bitcoin and Ethereum. Their core product is an easy-to-use crypto on-ramp and digital asset broker with over a million users. How cool is that? You can not only trade crypto like Bitcoin and Ether, but you can also trade digitized gold and around 30 other digital assets. What's amazing about BitPanda is how easy it is to set up an account within within minutes and get going with the minimum amount of just one euro. So make sure you check out BitPanda. They are a sponsor of Untold Stories. I love them, especially if you're in Europe or anywhere in the world, bitpanda.com. Thank you so much, guys. Untold Stories wouldn't be here without the amazing production company, Blockworks Group. A few months ago, I approached Blockworks Group and I said, hey guys, I want to do a show, Untold Stories. Can we make it happen? And these guys are the only event and podcast production company that I trust. Really, the show is powered by them and it wouldn't be here today without the amazing work of the Blockworks Group team. So for access to all the premier digital asset conferences and to check out their other podcasts in their network that they produce, check them out at blockworksgroup.io. That's blockworksgroup.io. I promise you will not be disappointed. I'm really excited that we're having Vinny Lingham on the show today. Vinny, thank you so much for coming. Thanks, Charlie. Great to be here. Before I get into your background, I have a confession to make with you, and I don't usually do this, but for, for a month or so, I had you muted on Twitter. And I'll tell you why I'm even telling you this and why it's important for the listeners to to hear this. Because in life, we live in an echo chamber sometimes. We only hear what we want to hear and what people that people will tell us things that we know that they're going to agree with us and validate our opinion already. And that's not the right way to live life. Vinny, you don't give a shit. And what I mean by that is you're willing to say whatever you want to say, regardless of how people react. And you've been... A lot of flack has been has been put on you, um, and you've been very successful in business, and you've been very successful in in crypto. But what I what I really like about you, and that's why I'm telling you this confession, is that for a few weeks, maybe even a month, I had you muted because you said something that I may have not agreed with, and I may have been frustrated by. So I don't remember what that was. So first, I'm sorry. 
That's no, no worries at all. Thank you. Um, <laughs> the apology. No, and I have to. T- I have to tell you this too. You know, I have a lot of respect for you as a, as a mentor and a businessman, but I think I've never respected someone so much that I disagreed with. And I wish I could remember what exactly it was that I disagreed with. But can you tell us? Um, tell us if you've. If you remember, you know, saying something on Twitter or talking about something, I know that when it comes to like um, the market and, and the price, um, you're very on top of things, but you're also very open to your own opinions, whether or not people agree with that. Can you give us some of these opinions that you've had over the years that you've been right about that people give you a lot of flack for? Well, I mean, look, uh, I'm not going to go on what, what I was, you know, whether I was right or wrong about anything, but... You know, my opinions have just basically been about the fact that it's a long road for Bitcoin to get to you know any heights which we think are you know um, mind-boggling. And when I say mind-boggling, like change the world, mind-boggling, where governments are responding you know negatively as a result. And you, know, I think everyone just wanted to happen it to happen overnight, and everybody wanted the price to go to a million bucks in 2017. And yeah. I was just like, guys, this is not practical. Like, you know, and bubbles are not great for Bitcoin, as we've seen now for the fourth time. Um, you know, and some would argue, no, it is good because it's like a step function. I just disagree. And so I think, you know, 2017, I was kind of the fireman trying to put the fire. I felt like Alan Greenspan in 1999. And, uh, but a lot of yeah. people <laughs> made the right financial decisions after reading your messages. They would say, you know, maybe this guy has a point. Maybe I should diversify or deleverage. And it ended up proving to be right because we saw what what the ICO bubble and what everything did to the space. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think uh, it, it got out of control. And I, I just try to be the voice of reason in a room where everyone's like, you know, mad. And, um, you know, and, and, you know, it's just, it's, I'm just a pragmatist. I'm just practical about things. And the one, I mean, I wrote a blog post preventing the next Bitcoin bubble two years ago, more than two and a half years ago. And people hated that post. I, I, I just said, look, you know, a slow, and, a slow and steady climb for Bitcoin would be much healthier for us in the long term. We'd see 30000 50000 a lot sooner than if we go bubble bust and it just causes people to lose money and savings. And, and I, I'm just very against people losing money. I think it's, it's really sad when you see people around the world piling money into Bitcoin at like 20000 They can't really afford to buy. And then it's pl- yeah, it, it plunging down to like 3000 And they've lost like 85% of their wealth. And for people who have wealth, they don't really care. They're like, eh, you know, I'll just huddle all the way through. But people who live you know, hand to mouth, they can't do that. And so I, I've just taken a very like negative view of the fact that people think Bitcoin is a get-rich-quick scheme. And- no, you're right. But don't you think that we almost need bubbles? Like, I mean, that's a, that's a very big... Um- that's a very different opinion to have where a lot of people think that, you know, Bitcoin and crypto in general, and for the purpose of this conversation, let's just use the word Bitcoin and crypto interchangeably again for the purpose mm-hmm. of this conversation. But don't you think that we almost like need bubbles because that's how markets will be efficient? I, I mean, I tweeted that out at some point. I was like, you know what, maybe we just need bubbles and busts to win. Like that's the way it is, you know? And and maybe that's my, maybe my, my, my view has changed. My view has changed over time and that the fact that it's not that we need it. It's just that I don't think. I just think it's inevitable. I think it's inevitable that Bitcoin goes to another bubble again, and the next one is bigger. And you know, the the only problem is a bubble, another Bitcoin bubble, crypto bubble at scale. When that, if and when that crashes, it will cause a global recession because of the numbers involved, and that global recession will cause massive, um, you know, negative, uh, you know, attention from governments and. You know, everyone in the world. Can you imagine if, like, we all think it's the next one is, you know, this time it's different and we all go pile money, money into it and the world economy tanks 15, 20% as a result of crypto? What do, you do you think, think that could really happen? I mean, that's what happens if there's another bubble, right? I mean, if there's another bubble and, and crypto goes from being worth a trillion dollars or whatever it is, like five over the course of six months or 12 months, uh, and then there's no real earnings, there's no real yield. There's this no, is a good just, point because you're right. Like, if we go, if let's just say we're sitting at nine thousand, let's just say over. I mean, these major bubble when the price went from like a thousand to twenty thousand, it happened very quickly over the course of yeah. weeks, mm-hmm. and then it went down just you know just as fast, and people were living in this disbelief. So, I guess my question to you is, let's say hypothetically speaking, we we're sitting at nine thousand now. There's some sort of event or something happens, and over the next like let's just say four weeks, we see this price nonstop go from nine thousand to 
let's just say a hundred thousand. And people go FOMO, Vinny, like FOMO that we've mm-hmm. never seen before. So FOMO that you're FOMOing. Let's just say, and when you FOMO, then I get out. Like that's, you know, that's an I indicator. Don't, I, don't, from, I don't FOMO though. I know. I I'm FOMO. just joking. I'm joking. <laughs> but you see my point. Like, let's just say we go and everyone, like every people that you know are like buying Bitcoin at $30,000 and the next day it's 40 and they're not selling and everyone puts money in. I mean, you're talking about a significant increase from 9,000 to 90,000. And then, and then in the course of, Less than a week, you see the price go from ninety thousand back down to like let's just say fifteen or twenty. If that were to happen, what type of effects would we see, not just in the crypto space but globally, in terms of people who put their money into crypto? So first of all, it's not going to go from nine thousand to hundred thousand in four weeks. That's not practical, and for for a lot of reasons. But most importantly, twenty thousand is the new high. So for us to break twenty thousand, it'll probably take two or three or four attempts. Um, at that level and retesting it from the charts, et cetera. So I think you probably see it over happening over two or three or four months, a consolidation at or around 20,000. Um, and once it's gotten enough momentum to break through that, yes, then, then there could be a catalytic event that takes it well above that. It doesn't stop at 100,000 if we're talking about a fast-moving event. It, stops, it goes up you know, 100 plus, um, and then it comes down. So the, the real numbers you have to work out is what is the Bitcoin dominance um, as a percentage? So if Bitcoin dominance is going down, that's uh, a concern. To Hasn't it been so, going up, though? Yeah, but I'm saying, so if, if the bubble if the bubble basically gets to the point where Bitcoin dominance keeps going down, like down to 30%, 25%, and then you've got all this ICO money inflating it, um, that's, or rather altcoin money, it, it's going to be, that, that's the, the bubble. Well, the one sign. of the biggest fears I have is that if that were to have the next bubble, instead of people selling back into like hard cash dollars or whatever, um, you know, and diversifying out into properties or whatever you want to the the, the right way, you know, because y- yeah. you learned from 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 bubbles before. That's yeah. why during 2017 you were able to kind of say, uh, guys, we should take a to take a look here. But I guess my question to you is, um, what about the scenario if people were to sell back into like Tether and USDT, TUSD, GUSD, USDDD. Like, I mean, all these different, I don't know what the, there's so many different of these stable coins. I feel like they're more dangerous than, than, than owning Bitcoin or Ether. No, I mean, it's probably not. Okay. Really? So, yeah. So the stable coin market is, is evolving quite nicely. I mean, maybe Tether's got a lot, of, a lot more risks than the others, but I think if people are going into, uh, die obviously would be a problem as well. Um, because it's just linked to Ethereum, but, um, just, just, General stablecoins, USDC is pretty safe. Um, Gemini dollars are safe, etc. So I'm not worried about those, um, and that's that, that's fine. Look, th- this is a complex topic, and we could go on for hours on this. But I, like, I'll summarize it by saying that you know the next bubble, if it is a bubble, um, you know, like if it's slow and steady growth, I'm, I'm less concerned. But if it's rapid movements and it moves up too high into some sort of parabolic state, um, you you just have to look at the market cap as a percentage of GDP, uh, global GDP. And at Bitcoin at a hundred thousand would be somewhere like you know near two trillion dollars. That, that's not that bad, <laughs> okay. When I say that's not that bad, it's conceivable. It's fine. It's probably okay. You probably see people piling money into it. Uh, if it went to, you know, if the crypto market as a whole went to five trillion dollars in a, in less than twelve months, that, that's that's going to be concerning. Yeah, and, I completely and, agree. And, and that is concerning because if it does tank. It tanks typically 80%. You're going to wipe out $4 trillion in global GDP overnight, and the knock-on effects of that are yeah, immeasurable. So if we do see another bubble bubble run or another run on, on crypto that gets us up to those levels, the response from governments with people losing that much money globally and that much wealth getting transferred into and lost into the crypto sphere uh, would be catastrophic for crypto because if you've ever seen governments respond negatively now you'll see it happen no i mean we've we've seen how the governments treat something like libra um and that's when there's someone to really like bring in front of a senate hearing um i think you're right i think the but it causes a a global depression make no mistake no you're right i think the biggest sorry you go first no no sorry so the 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 knock-on effect is crypto has caused a global depression depression let's ban crypto because crypto is going to ruin the world's economies. And, and then the governments get to, even though, let's be frank, like the global depression has, is, is definitely coming. There's, there's one on the horizon. Even though it may be the fault of governments in general over the years for allowing this to get to this point, 
the trigger point is always the catalyst is always what is blamed right the the mortgage housing crisis was blamed in 2008 but it wasn't the that. it was a lot of things but because that triggered the collapse the uh, you know like that's what gets blamed so can you imagine the next you know bubble bust crypto gets blamed crypto just get banned you're 100% right I'll tell you why. The biggest mandate governments have, uh, they claim to have, is consumer protection, protecting their citizens. I mean, not just not just with, in economies, but I mean, you look at Russia, right? I mean, what was the pretense of Russia invading Crimea or, or just to protect the, the, the Russian-speaking citizens? I mean, you look go back to the 1940s and 1939, you look, what was the reason that... That Hitler had to 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 invade Czech Republic or um, Poland is to protect the German speaking citizens that live there. So I mean that's definitely a a real reason, not reason, but a real excuse that governments will have, especially if what you say happens and people start losing a lot of money or they get scammed or something were to happen. But I want to go back to 2012 because there was a there was a very pivotal moment in crypto's history that's not talked about enough. And you were really very much a part of that pivotal moment. So let's go back to 2012. You launched Gift, G-Y-F-T. Um, I used to use Gift when you started accepting Bitcoin. So for people who don't know, in May 2013, um, in May, so think about how early this is in the crypto days. May 2013. This is super, super early. This was before, you know, even the previous um, bubble before this one. But in May 2013, uh, Vinny, who had founded Gift um, and the CEO, opened up the ability for people with Bitcoin to buy gift cards at over 50,000 merchants. This was such a big deal. Now, if this would happen today, you'd say, OK, whatever. But this was such a big deal in 2013 because the user experience was really good on Gift and it was quick and easy and you could do it within the app itself. So what I started doing, Vinny, using your app, and you could probably go look at my history, was I actually started mm -hmm. using Gift to live on crypto. And I could think of actual moments. Like, for example, I remember standing outside Banana Republic with all my clothes ready to... I know I was shopping at Banana Republic, but I mean, um, I was buying... I was having Bitcoin in the app, and then I would go and Gift at the register and be able to buy gift cards. And I remember... And tell me if I'm wrong, but at one point, you even uh, allowed unconfirmed transactions to buy gift cards. Am I, am I wrong on that? Well, let's go through... The, I mean, yeah, so we did that, and I was... I mean, one of the things that made this the the system amazing was we were using zero conf. We processed over a hundred thousand transactions using zero conf with not a single double spend, and we're talking you know tens of millions of dollars. And uh, you know, in BTC in those days, at, at you know between fifty and four hundred bucks a, uh, a coin, it was you know a, a crap lot of coins. So we did that. You know, zero conf was a really interesting mechanism to allow. Um, you know, Bitcoin to be used in a, on a transactional basis, on a daily basis, globally. Um, and we could accept payments from Nigeria, even, and, you know, anywhere in the world, and not have to worry about the security of the money um, and the payments. So, so that's what we did. And, and that's what made Gift very successful, is that we were able to build a, a global payment rails on top of ZeroCon. Can, can you kind of walk us through, you know, um, so you're, so you're, you know, you're running Gift and nothing to do with Bitcoin, and one day you fall in love with Bitcoin, you decide to implement Bitcoin into Gift, and you probably had investors and team members who were saying, what the hell are you doing? I mean, tell me about that. I had every VC and every team member telling me I'm not. Oh, I got to hear these stories, please. <laughs> <laughs> no, like I have a better bottle of wine with one of the engineers that we wouldn't hit $1,000 in sales on the first day. We really? Did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, everyone thought it was just like this fringe thing that no one's interested in. My, my co-founder was were like, what the hell are you doing? And they spoke to their VCs who hadn't even heard of, like we spoke to our investors, they didn't even heard of Bitcoin, right? The VCs invested in us. They were like, what's Bitcoin? And we we're like, okay, this is, like, I'm doing it anyway. I'm the CEO and I get to make the decision yeah. and we're, we're going to do it, right? So we did it. That's and we, we, we launched it. We had a couple of great articles on TechCrunch. John Biggs wrote us up twice in one day, I think. He was so excited about it. And um you know, it was great. I and mean, we basically built the entire business on that. And what the interesting thing about Bitcoin is we use Bitcoin was 90% of our sales up until the point we we got to some level of scale and we sort of, you know, we went on the Ellen show, et cetera. And then, but what Bitcoin really helped us do is get a lot of volume in from the community and the community supported the uh, gift in a big way, which I'm still very grateful Wait, for. Wait, Bitcoin became 90% of your sales? 
Yeah. Oh yeah. my God, that's crazy. And, well, it, it just grew so quickly, right? It overtook everything else. Well, you provided yeah. a utility. I don't know if yeah. you realize, and I don't use the word utility lightly. I mean, I'm, when, I, when I say the utility, I'm talking about like the lights or water yeah. or power. Yeah. I mean, that's what you brought. People were living off us. You weren't the only one. People were living off gift. Did you have people email you or call you or oh, tell you? Yeah, like, we, had, we had huge fans. I mean, we, I think you probably see some of the reviews in the App Store still. It was amazing. And so we, the, the biggest challenge we had was getting merchants to come on board and, and give us their cards. So like in the early days, we just we had like Amazon maybe and a few others, but we didn't have like Starbucks. We didn't have all the other ones. And eventually we had enough volume coming through the platform that we were able to get more merchants on board. And then we were able to get more credit card sales and it just became, you know, it, it basically ignited the business, and we got eventually we bought by First Data, but we grew the we grew the business massively uh, over the course of like you know, eighteen months after we acquired. But Bitcoin was the was the the, the bedrock of our business, and we, we're talking about a you know massive massive amount of volume. Can you? St- um, I haven't done it in in years, but can you still use Gift to buy gift cards with Bitcoin? Oh uh, yeah, yeah, you can. As far as I know, I haven't I haven't done it in a while. But Has, yeah. did so First Data is one of the largest financial companies in the world and so you sold to them in um 2014 again still very early in bitcoin and crypto mm-hmm. um i don't even think ethereum like existed yet so did no you it didn't get, actually did you get pushback from first data did they ever try uh to turn off the bitcoin or did they recognize that no, now this they, is like the thing they recognized that we had a strong community and a lot of the sales at that time was coming. Eventually, like the, the Bitcoin sales went down to a small percentage of because we just grew the business massively. But they were, I mean, you know, they were very uh, supportive of us using, you know, continuing. We obviously had some discussions about it, but you know, we we, we let them. You know, we, we had a good KYC process internally. We were able to, you know, uh, verify customers. We had good policies in terms of limits and how much people could spend. So we, we did a good business. In um, 2012, I tried launching a business where I would allow people. For very small amounts, hundred, two hundred dollars, to take credit off of old gift cards and buy Bitcoin with it, um, for a utility purpose, to be able to buy small amounts of Bitcoin. Um, and I approached First Data, and they just—I remember—they told me it was like the dumbest idea. No one's gonna, no one cares about Bitcoin. It's fringe. It's stupid. And then here you are, two years later, selling your company to one of the largest financial companies <laughs> in the world, and you probably changed their mind on Bitcoin. I probably should have approached them a year later. Yeah, I was the crypto guy for a while. When you I was were still there. Yeah. I mean, but not only the crypto guy, but you probably helped change the, change the minds and open up the eyes to to, to Bitcoin to a lot of different um, a lot of different people, and so that really was a big deal. I w- I would say that you know, Gift was the first um, one of the first real uh, Bitcoin utilities, and and so when when you do when you do make your own opinions, um, which you're allowed to do, of course, um, crypto Twitter and, and these different places. Will will come at you sometimes, but I don't think that a lot of people really know how invested and involved with you and how much risk you took going back those years. And so, so I guess no. on behalf of all crypto Twitter, thank you for that, and I'm sorry. <laughs> no, thanks, thanks, Charlie. I, I think one of the other things that people don't appreciate is how much data we had access to at Gift. Like we had a ton of data. I mean, we could map sales to the Bitcoin price. We could look at human behavior. Can you tell us about it. some of that? Sure. I mean, you know, so when Bitcoin would go up 20 or 30%, our sales would spike because people would be wanting to spend their Bitcoin. And sales were low. When Bitcoin prices low, people would not spend. So you could see the hodl rates go up and when the price is down. And you could see it, the, the spend rates go up when the price is up. And you could actually chart, the, you know, you chart sales against technicals. And so there's a lot of data we had on, in terms of, you know, we could have traded Bitcoin crazily because we just had so much data coming in. We had, um, you know, we had millions of users how weird is that in those years you're telling me that that when the bitcoin price went up 20 30 percent people wanted to spend their bitcoin yeah so 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 contrary to popular belief on twitter people don't just huddle all the way up they actually do spend on the way up and and you could tell i mean you know we didn't get too creepy but you could literally go in because uh, we didn't have too much personal information anyway so it was fine we could like anonymize data we could look at you know through the through the chain you could see what um you know when someone bought their coins when they spent them or at least not when they bought them at least but when the, the coins were in an address when they spent them and you could like derive a lot of data from that no um, it's a great piece of advice i think the advice that basically what you're saying is that when the bitcoin price is going up or any asset that you have that's appreciating don't just sell it for dollars to let it sit in your bank account sell it for something that's going to work for you i mean when the yeah i remember when the bitcoin yeah. price was fifteen thousand dollars i bought my house um so I, it worked out in my, I mean, I didn't just sell Bitcoin for the house. I sold to dollars, paid taxes, then bought the house. But the point is that 
buying assets that will work for you is the better way to do it. And that's great advice for people who are listening to the show. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, people need to realize that that they need to maintain a, you know, so one of the things that people, like people think that you should huddle forever. Like, but you know, if your Bitcoin gets to 95% of your wealth, like you have to ask yourself, like, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, because it, it's, 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 and this is what happened in 2017, 2018. Like literally people, I mean, I have people who messaged me and I told them to sell and they sold and they, and they bought a house, and then like I got a you know a friend of mine, a guy actually wanted a meeting eventually. He was very thankful because you know, he sold it like you know fifteen thousand or something as well, and he bought his house. And he paid off, he paid off his house and whatever else, and he was just like very thankful because I think I met him at like five thousand or three thousand. He was like, it's the best advice she ever gave me. I love like, those you know, my, stories. My, my, my wife is so happy now, and like, but you know, it's 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 great. Like, I've always had a very conservative approach to to crypto. Where I try to make crypto not more than you know. 20% of my wealth, and so the price goes up too much. I'll, I think even to... 20% yeah. is really high. Well, it's, it's not too high if, you ha- if you're well diversified, right? True so story. If you ha- yeah, so, so remember, 20% for someone who has 10K is 2,000 bucks. 20% for someone who has you know, 5 million bucks is a million dollars. Like, you, you got to ask yourself what the, what, you know, what the range is for you because some people are just not comfortable having a million dollars in crypto. Other people are totally fine with it, you know? And, and at some point, like in 2017, crypto made everyone's portfolios look distorted. And you may have, you know, even though you may be targeting 20%, you're sitting with 90% and it's illiquid because you've got SAFs and you've got this and that. And so it's hard to balance a portfolio in crypto. And so you've got to just be, you know, I would say just be like, you know, conservative. That's the most understatement of the year. Yeah. There's a market maker that I know and they they give away t-shirts that say liquidity isn't great. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so this is this. So this is the problem. Like, and the pro- look. If you've got, if you if you don't, ha- if you're not a high net worth individual, and you're, let's say you've got twenty five or fifty k in savings, and it's all in crypto, it's not the worst thing in the world because you're not losing a million dollars, right? So you can keep, you know, as long as you have some liquidity to pay your mortgage for a couple of months or whatever else, and you, you know, and and like, but if if Bitcoin's like peaking, I mean, you have to ask yourself, like, are you really willing to lose all that money? And so I think people need to maintain some amount of liquidity. I know some people just don't want to have any; they want to have like no, you know, like no dollars. I'm like, are you nuts? You have to pay your bills. Like shit can go wrong, and prices can tank. And anyway, look, everyone's different. So this is the problem with crypto Twitter. Like everyone is in a different financial situation, and we're we're trying to make broad sweeping statements that apply to everyone. Like some people have got debt. Some people have got you know, high overheads, they're supporting family. Some people have got like no, no, no job. And like, do you think the same advice applies to everyone? It's nuts. No, right? I completely so, agree. So we, we take this broad strokes approach that everyone should do the same, uh, be, you know, should to like huddle or everyone should like this. And, you know, and, and then like this person's a no coiner because they don't want to have any Bitcoin. Like you don't know someone's financial situation. Like, you know, I, if someone's living on the bread line and they're a no coiner, okay. You know, it's like, it's not their fault. <laughs> you know, it's just, I think people just need a bit more forgiving on Twitter and more respectful. I mean, I, I block people and I mute people, but I, I mainly block people who I just think are just rude and, and, and not considerate of others. And, and, and just, you know, if you're snarky or whatever, that generally means that you have emotional issues and that you haven't dealt with it yourself. And, and so I'd rather have the person on my feed. I mean, if anyone, like most people I know in the industry would never post anything rude on my, on, on, on like my feed. And people have met me or just like, you know, even if you don't do disagree with what I say, you can unfollow me or whatever. But I, I, like I find some of the, the most interesting people out there who I actually follow, who don't follow me back, who, um, who you know, dislike what I say. They're never rude to me, you know? That's a good and point. I, I, think, I, I think that like people who are just rude tend to have emotional issues that are unresolved. How do you actually live your life on crypto? How do you spend Bitcoin? How do you live and actually help continue to grow this ecosystem. Since 2016, so for over three years, I've been personally using the BitPay prepaid Visa card, and it's amazing. So check it out at bitpay.com forward slash card. That's bitpay.com forward slash card. You can also buy gift cards from over a dozen merchants in the app itself. So it's pretty easy. You get the card in the mail, you activate it, you download the app, you send some Bitcoin to the app and you load the card into dollars with your Bitcoin and then spend it. It's so easy. It's so convenient. And I've been using it for a few years. Check it out. BitPay.com forward slash card. 
All right, so I hope you didn't skip my ad because in the early part of the episode, we talked about how Bitpanda is working with us here at Untold Stories. Bitpanda is the leading European platform for investing in digital assets. I really like Bitpanda's approach. Why? I'll tell you why, so don't skip. Basically, what they're doing is to apply the same tech you're used to from Bitcoin to other digital assets. So, for example, you trade real precious metals like gold and silver on their platform 24-7 with ultra-low fees. And what's really cool is that you can trade gold and silver and these other precious metals with other assets like Bitcoin, Ethereum, and other cryptos that they support. So in a nutshell, Bitpanda is advocating the tokenization topic. So they want to bring financial products like stocks, ETFs, and more to everybody who uses their platform anywhere in the world. So check them out, bitpanda.com. Support my sponsors. Have a great day. I want to talk to you about the Bitcoin Foundation. Um, another topic yeah. that you and I have never really gotten a chance to to talk to talk about. Um, so on my Twitter profile, on my profile right now, um, I actually mentioned Bitcoin Foundation. I say founding director of Bitcoin Foundation, and I do get a lot of flack for that. I get a lot of flack, um, probably once a month for that. People, people, you know, for what the foundation became, and I keep it on. I'll tell you why I keep it on. I'm proud of the intentions, and I'm proud of the ideas and thoughts and foresight that you know, the original people had um, for starting the Bitcoin Foundation. And I guess I, I'm not settled. I'm not settled. I haven't been able to like wrap up that segment of my life and, and move on because I feel like I don't understand how it went from what the idea was to what it should be to what it actually became. I don't know where the disconnect was. Now, you're you're a board member. I'm not sure if you are still a board member of the foundation. You got involved. No, I, I, actually, I actually resigned. Okay, you res- I resigned too, so we're, we're the same in that. Yeah. Um, the idea for the foundation, and, 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 hopefully, and if you can't tell me, then, then we can move on. But I mean, I'll tell you where the idea came from. Tell me where it got messed up. And, and I'm doing this for the purpose of this show for history, because this show will be listened to in 10, 20 years. And I want people to know my feelings and your feelings and the history of the foundation. So the foundation started, um, really it started with a, with a coffee meeting between me and Gavin. So Gavin and I were having coffee in Vienna. It was 2011. And I said, hey, Gavin, what about, what if we had this idea where we basically take the dozen or so companies in the space, we all put in a little bit of money every year, and it allows us to be able to pay developers to work on Bitcoin. It allows us to do like common advertising. It allows us to travel, go to conferences, and most importantly, it allows us to run our own conference. This will be like a trade organization, uh, just representing the companies that are a member of this organization. And we should do that. And Gavin said, sounds great. It's a great idea. And then it seems like it became this thing that tried to represent the whole Bitcoin community. And that's where it failed immediately. What do you think about that? Um, look, I, I think it's had a, 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 you know, we've moved to a different point in time. I think at the time it was noble intentions. And I think I was on the board for a while trying to make sure that we can continue that. Uh, we had always had a check it pass with certain board members and, and you know, if you look at the, you know, we cleaned it up pretty well. I, I brought in Lou and, and and Brock was there and Bobby Lee and a couple. Of others. We were all together trying to trying to clean up the organization. And we did a good job of cleaning up. But we posted minutes. We we did a lot uh, past couple of years. But it just got to the point where I think everyone, um, you know, for better or worse, the previous the previous directorship of the foundation, you know, damaged it to a point where it was just not um, recoverable, and uh, it lost the community support. And that's, that is what it is. And, you know, I, I came in trying to clean it up. And I think we did it. We, we, I think we cleaned it up, but I think it was just too, too little, too late. Um, and so I, I stepped off. I still think that it can keep going to some extent. But, but Bitcoin's become a very global thing now. And it's, you know, there's a lot of contributors to it. Uh, the, the, wealth, the wealth appreciation in Bitcoin means that most of the developers who had coins don't need uh, a foundation to support them. Maybe they do. I don't know. But, um, you know, you've got Blockstream supporting them. So that's great. And Chain Code Lab. What and, does the foundation even do now? Um, you know, it, it's mainly been dealing with um, regulatory you know, backlash. So, so there regulators. is still going, there is still work being yeah. done. There is a budget. There's a, lot, there's a lot of good work. There's no budget, really. That's the problem. The foundation doesn't have funds. 
And so whenever regulators want to figure out what to do, and they and, and normally uninformed regulators, they come to the Bitcoin Foundation because they send us like, you know. And True stuff. story. There's Coin yeah, Center. Yeah. There's the Chamber yeah. for Digital Commerce. But but but, but they can They come to the Bitcoin Foundation because that's the name, and they want to send a subpoena to us. Like, <laughs> and we're like, okay, and then we go and educate them and explain to them what's going on. But you know, it's kind of like, well, you know what? Let's just. I mean, my view is that it can keep running, but it's not not well funded. And, you know, uh, I've put money into it and try to help it out. But it's just not something which I think we need anymore um, at this point. That's a very good point. And that's okay, though, right? Like, I'm okay with it's that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It I'm served a- its purpose for a long time. That's my that's my point. It served yeah. its purpose. And it's okay for, for things to, like, just kind of be done with um, the mandate ending. I mean, you see companies close up shop all the time. And they've yep. been around. Like, there's a gas station down here. um, on Main Street where I live, and the guy's been around, he's the oldest gas station, he's been around for like 70 years or something, not 70 years, like 50 years, and he he still will pump your gas, he's like 80 years old, he'll pump your gas, he'll do everything, you can't pump your own gas, He and I'm like, I'm like, Dick, like, I love your gas station, I come here, but I'm like, almost like, you're probably not making any money anymore, what's the deal? And it's almost sad to see to see that still exists, and still, and still running when other gas stations have opened up around him, um, but he mm. loves what he does, so I guess hopefully he doesn't shut down because I love it. But it, it's a little bit sad. So I guess that's that was my point, and and I, maybe now I can get some closure on this, but not the yeah. One. I mean, I, look, I think Brock's still there, Bobby D's still there, you know, um, a couple others, and they, you know they, they're still trying this they, to do whatever they can. But I don't think anything, you know, it, it, I don't think anyone's there's not there's not going to be fireworks out of it. So encrypting encrypting data on the blockchain is a killer app, right? It's been talked about forever. Um, encrypting mm. identity. Well, well uh, I'd rephrase that, but yeah, yeah, carry on. No, how would you rephrase that? Tell me. I, I don't think data should be stored on a blockchain almost ever. Okay, but and you think, started a data company though, Civic. But we don't store data on the blockchain. We store we we use blockchain as a public key infrastructure for digital, um, for, for effectively, um, you know. Key validation. But if data is encrypted, why why is it a bad idea to store it on the blockchain other than well, other than bloat? I know the well, blockchains can get so, bloated. So picture this, right? If you put all your if you put if you put all your data on a blockchain, someone's access to your keys and they can decrypt it. It's, it. Like you can't modify things that are on a blockchain. It's committed. It's there forever, right? So putting data on a blockchain that can be you know at some point in time reverse engineered through you know quantum computing or whatever else is not a great idea. In general, so, like I'm not a big fan of storing. So with Civic, when we've we've designed our architecture, we keep the data on your device, and when you hand your data over, we allow the the recipient to use basically validate that the keys are, the keys that we use to sign and encrypt the, the data on on the pass over was your keys. That's it. It's literally meant as key distribution um, and like like more like a public key infrastructure play rather than putting the data on a blockchain. I mean, I just. I, I think that putting any PII on a blockchain is a bad idea. I think it, but, I, but but having said that, I'm waiting for someone to go and just do that. But you let know, me ask you a question some, though. Yeah. So you think it's a bad idea, right? And mm-hmm. that, and that's fine. I mean, a lot of people think that's a bad idea too. I mean, I remember going back like 2012 when Eric launched Satoshi Dice, and that was being done on chain. Luke and a mm-hmm. lot of people called that spam and said it was a bad idea. Some people even tried to go far as to ban it, to ban. Whatever is perceived. Well, you, like when you say data, what data are you talking about? Well, so so um, Satoshi Dice was being run on chain, and at the time, I think I forgot we had Eric's episode just launched a few, a few days ago, so I don't have the exact number on me, but a, a very significant portion of whatever was happening on blockchain, on the Bitcoin blockchain, was. Um, Satoshi dice. And so a lot of people at the time were calling it spam and to a point where Luke tried to put in a a, a BIP, a, a Bitcoin improvement protocol um, to to get that banned. And that was a big red flag because who gives the right of anyone to say what should and shouldn't be on the blockchain? If you're willing to pay the fees for it, then you should be able to put whatever you want on the blockchain. No, I, I don't disagree on that point. I, I disagree on the point where you, if you're doing it for other people and you're putting PII, personally identifiable information, onto a blockchain, um, I don't think that that's a good idea uh, in general because um, for safety the, the, and security reasons. That's a good security, point. Safety, pri- privacy. Yeah, like I'm pro privacy. And I just don't think that's a good idea. Uh, can you can you tell me the difference? Um, tell us the difference between privacy and anonymity. So privacy means that that. Two people, at least. So, 
if you and I perform a transaction and that's private, that means just the two of us know about it, or if it could be a three or four party transaction, that's private. No one else can see it except the parties to the transaction. Anonymous means that, that uh, I'm performing a transaction and no one else knows about who I am, et cetera. So the, the, you know, pr privacy is like, is really about restricting like who knows what it is um, to, to the people who it's intended for. And anonymous transactions are nobody on either side knows who it is. Do you think in our world we can have both? I think for small transactions, anonymous is probably fine. For large transactions, under the regulatory environment we live in globally. No. Uh, uh, Men with, with guns, no. Oh, yeah, no. A anonymity will never will never be, like, huge. It's not part of a society. I mean, like, you've you got, you got to understand, like, we... The technology technology mimics society, in a sense. Okay? And what do you mean by that? It's a function of society. Like we, 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 when when you walk into a bar and people, you know, know, like they see you, you're a human, right? And it's totally fine for us to be um, recognizing that as a human being walking to the bar because you can see them, etc. Et we we would be, um, it would be very difficult for us to have a society where androids are walking around a bar and acting like humans right now, right? Of course. Because you don't know who's there, who's seeing that information, who's recording it. Like you know, you can imagine it's effectively a robot walking around recording everything. But it's like Black, because, like Black Mirror. Exactly. So I haven't watched that episode, but I'm guessing. Uh, you know, but can you imagine? Uh, can you imagine that we would be comfortable with with machines that looked like humans? That would be a big problem too. Right. So like you know, Blade Runner risk. Scenario where it's just you're you're not sure whether the human is really human, because the problem the thing about humans right now is that we we um, we absorb information it stays in our head but unless we have you know recording instrumentation it's you know, it's a one to one relationship when I talk to you one to one having coffee like I'm pretty sure that you're not recording it you're not doing this but like the functions of a human is is you know we we have this trust in society that, that you and I are. Humans, there. If you were talking to a machine, the next thing you're wondering about is where is the data going? Who's recording it? Where is the, it being transmitted? There was an episode of um, of Black Mirror where, in one of the first seasons, where everyone had this this like camera in their eyes that allowed mm -hmm. them to basically record their whole lives, mm -hmm. and it allowed them to like rewind and you know look at anything. Um, would that be? Would that, if that were to exist, if you all of a sudden tomorrow can put like a contact lens in your eye that recorded everything, would that? Would you think that would be something that would, um, you know, exclude someone's right to privacy, or is it more anonymity? I mean, how do you think our society would react to that? I know it's not crypto, but I'm I'm curious on your view on this. Well, I mean, the, look, I, I don't think we have much privacy these days anyway. Everywhere we go, there's cameras everywhere. True. Recording devices anyway. So, so but, but my, my back to my point of like how we mimic society. Like we have certain rules that evolve over time. Right, so I can imagine a world where, thirty years time, you have bars where no androids are allowed in. For argument's sake, you know, you, you basically get to this like, like e-cigarettes, total, total Recall, um, uh, you know, Blade Runner, etc., where where like androids are differentiated from humans, and we we have we have different rules. So, so like the rules in society, like technology mimics those rules. So the technology has to conform to the rules of society. Um, Wait a minute. Technology has to conform to the rules of society. I feel yeah. like that would be great if that were the case, but um, over the long term, not in the short term. The problem okay. in the short term is that technology is it's faster. Technology, it's, it's faster, right? And so society has to play catch up. Do, but, do, but ultimately, like we and every society is different. Every pocket of society is different. Have different rules. I mean, it's amazing if you look at some parts of the world how some technology is just banned and people still use analog because of just trust issues. Um, but my point is, I think, you know, one drives the other and, and, and I think that, um, it's often an ebb and a flow. So sometimes technology will get ahead of society and then society catches up, but eventually you get too far ahead, then, you know, I mean, regulators are there, they have jobs to do, they have to regulate, otherwise they're out of a job. That's true. That's and, a good and point. So, regu so regula regulations are going to come in, um, more and more. And you're already seeing that right now. Look at the Facebook debacle, right? Uh, like the government has let Facebook. Facebook just do what they want for many years, and all of a sudden they're under now all of a scrutiny. sudden they're flipping out. Right. Yeah, I mean with data the, breaches and things like that, though the, the pendulum always swings too far on one end or the other. 
And so you can always expect uh, a retaliation from regulators and government. There's some people who think we'd be better living in an unregulated society, and and but you know then there's the that's a different world which I think you know deserves a bit more inquiry. It's not as simple as as it's not as simple as stated, right? True story. You, it's safe to say that you've been a serial entrepreneur. Um, you're pretty much your whole adult life. In 2013, you founded a company Incubator. In 2007, you launched Yola. This was pre-Bitcoin. Um, then you went into working um, with charitable organizations. And I want to talk to you about the Silicon Cape Initiative because I love uh, South Africa. Uh, you were awarded a bunch of different awards, you know, by the World Economic Forum. Um, and then you went, you got into crypto like full time, you gift and, and civic. Um, and then you did, you're, you did one of the coolest things and I'm not sure if you're still doing it, but you're basically, you know, the star of the South African version of uh, shark tank called dragon's den. So, um, why did I say all that? Um, you probably know, um, definitely better than me, but probably better than most people. What makes up a good team? What makes up a good entrepreneur? What makes up good management? Um, tell me some stories from, from the TV show. Tell me some stories from your companies and people you've met along the way, um, of some times where you walked into a meeting and you say, this kid is going to kill it, whatever he does. And, or someone, you met a CEO of a company and you say to yourself, I have no idea how this guy is even a CEO right now. I have lots of stories. Um, <laughs> we have lots of time. <laughs> so, so I did, I did, um, um, I did Shark Tank South Africa and Dragon's Den. They're actually two different series. Oh, I they're two different them. series. Yeah, yeah, and then uh, oh, cool. yeah. So, my look. The three things I currently do right now is I obviously run Civic. I'm a general partner at MultiCoin Capital, and I'm also a general partner at Newtown Partners, which is my VC fund in South Africa. Um, and I love you know, that we, name, Newtown Partners. After yeah. I'm assuming after the the um, township in Cape Town. Actually, funny story. We we, we my my co-founder uh, Lou. He was uh, on the set of Dragons Den in 2000. 14 when I was filming that and we were like let's just start a VC fund and it was actually in Newtown in Johannesburg and we were like okay call it Newtown Partners so that's the that's the where we came up with the name um, I love that name um here in Florida we have a neighborhood called Newtown and it's not the safest neighborhood so when you call it that it's actually pretty cool um I like that name a lot in fact I I feel like a great VC firm fund in Florida would if they call themselves Newtown Partners it would be or like Newtown VC could be a really cool name but that's but that's completely separate. Yeah. So tell me about like, like, like people, like what type of, what type, cause you have a lot of people that listen to this show are VCs, but they're also entrepreneurs. Most of people that listen to this show are entrepreneurs. I mean, tens of thousands of different people. What type of qualities should they try to achieve? What, what type of qualities should they try to, to have? And not like the textbook things, but what do you look for? As soon as I walk into a meeting, what are like some basic things that you look for that would be Automatic great first impressions or automatic great red, uh, like red flags. So I, I think one of the most interesting things that I've come to the conclusion with is in entrepreneurship is the most um, the the single. I mean, there's lots of indicators, right? But one of the indicators I look for is grit, perseverance. Entrepreneurship is hard. It's supposed to be hard. It's not an easy thing. It's become glamorized of late, and and people have had easy times. They've had a lot of luck and right place, right time type scenarios. But generally, what I will say is um, grit and perseverance is the most important attribute for an entrepreneur because you know, if you can get through the toughest times and you can make it through there and you, you don't quit and you get to the end, and sometimes you don't have a choice, right? You, you run out of money, your thing ends, whatever. But generally, it's the, it's the ones that will like, you know, it's the cockroaches. <laughs> those, those are the guys who I've seen, you know, I've seen. I've had really good returns from, and um, and people who just will not say die. And it, you know, obviously, you need to have all the other stuff. You have to be smart. You have to be, you know, um, you have to be thoughtful. You have to be driven and analytical, and you have to have a good idea. But but it's the grit and perseverance that separates the, you know, the wheat from the chaff, literally. And that's that's the one thing I look for. Was there was there you know were there uh, moments from your childhood, um, growing up in the Eastern Cape that kind of still stay with you that allow you to get over that hump when you're feeling um, that you can't get over it? Um, I think it was more like I wouldn't say my childhood, but just I think generally my I think most of my adult life. 
just been just grit and determination, willing to work harder than everyone else. But why? Why are you willing to work hard? Because I've seen it. Uh, you don't stop. I mean, I'm looking at my notes here. What? What? I, I'm trying to. I, I'm asking because I I want to know for myself. I'm I'm not 30 yet. I want to be a serial entrepreneur. What is it? Is there? It's just, there ma- it's just math. It's just math to some extent, right? So when I was in my early 20s. Um, I did the math. I'm like, okay, I have no work experience. I was going to my first job. I just had a company. Like, I had a, you know, I started. A, I kind of got involved in the business and it didn't quite work out. And it was in the food category, and I wasn't really interested in food. So, um, it's more of a family business. And I, I was like, look, I'm. Gonna, I tried doing some, you know, frozen food stuff. It was about a year doing that. And then I, I decided to go work in Johannesburg for a while. And I, I dropped out of university because I. It's a long story, but my dad's company was in a little bit of financial difficulty with the emerging markets crisis in 98. And so I didn't finish my final year at university, and I was literally the top program in my class, like by, by a mile. Oh, so you're a dropout. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So I dropped out, I and I was that. just, I, I was like, kind of depressed. I went on Prozac, and I was like, because I, I you know, when you, yeah, of course. When you, when you, when you talk, like, I was planning doing masters and PhD and everything else, and, in, in, you know, in, uh, I was, I just, I was, just, I love programming. It was my thing. What'd you do that first year? Um, when I dropped out, yeah, yeah. Well, I went back to help in the business and spent about a year there, um, trying to fix things up. And I did an okay job on on the business side, but it just wasn't my thing. I mean, I just realized, like, what am I doing in the food industry? Um, no, if you don't have passion for the frozen food industry, then it's kind of <laughs> yeah. tough to be in that space. I have exactly. a friend who loves it. Like, literally, it's his passion. He started. It's a. Th- he's doing his third company. Sold the other two in groceries. I don't. Yeah. I don't get it. I guess it's what he's good at. Yeah, and people appreciate it, but I, it was just too it was just too, too linear for me. Um, so I moved up to to Johannesburg, worked there for a while, and um, it was just a grit. Like so, so, so when I go back to the math around it, like wait, I want to point, I, I want to just yeah. point this out to my listeners here. Like I, I'm looking at at a bio that I prepared of Vinny, and it, it includes all success. But what these bios never include, very rarely, is failures. And what so Vinny, what you're talking about is. It's math. You you had success, but you also had things that you failed at. It just it's- oh, I, I, I had a I had a big failure back then. Back then, I, I you know it wasn't a lot of money, but I lost some invested money, and I it was it was just like it was a depressing time. I was basically like maxed out on credit card debt. I had no place to stay. Wow. I was I was like twenty years old and kind of on the streets of Johannesburg trying to find a job. And yeah, and I mean I've got lots of little stories along the way, but. Yeah, eventually I, I managed to find a job, more of a contract thing. I, it wasn't a, it was kind of a weird thing. I, I did like an acquihire because I I built this little thing on the website on the side that you know back in the dot com days, like two thousand April two thousand fourteen, I was able to like flog this thing for a couple of thousand bucks, and the guy gave me a job That's working crazy. this com- company for a few months. I had like a six month contract, and then I that contract ended, and I didn't have any job for like two, you know, two or three months more. And then I found another job, and but you know once I got into a stable sort of work environment. For a couple of years, about two or three years, I, I just I realized that I, it was so much I just didn't know about working in the company and working startup. I eventually joined a startup. It was like fifty people, and you know, they grew to three hundred people. But the one thing I learned was, um, you know, if you're working eight hours a day, like a nine to five job, you cannot get ahead of anyone else. It's just not possible because everyone else is working eight hours. That's the baseline. So if you want to if you want to have exponential growth, you need to up that. So I used to like start work at you know, um, we used to work U.S. hours because you know, we, we did online marketing on, on Google and Overture and those platforms back in those days. And so I was working U.S. hours and it was 1 to 10 was the prescribed hours, but I would literally come in at like maybe 8 or 9, maybe probably 10 o'clock in the morning and I'd finish at like, you know, 12 at night. And I just worked harder and longer than everyone else for years. And when I started my first company, Clisa Customers, I did the same thing. I was working 18, 20 hours a day every single day, seven days a week. And so I, did, I maintained that for about a decade. So for about a decade, I was, I was probably putting out 20 hours a day. I'd say 80 hours a day on average of work um, and sleeping very little, which, was, which is very unhealthy. That's a great I quote, though. I, I wouldn't recommend it. Well, it's a great quote. It's a great point um, that eight hours is the baseline. Like that should yeah. be written down somewhere. Eight hours is what everyone else is doing. So if you want to get ahead in life, you need to do better and do more. What everyone yeah. else is doing, and, and you don't get to exponential until twelve. So, like, you won't be exponentially better than your peers until you're doing twelve hours a day. And remember, it's not about like, <laughs> and get the no. And, it's not about should... sitting at a desk for twelve hours a day. It's about yeah. being productive. Yeah. So, so like, people think that you know, it's the old adage, like, hey, you know, uh, I've been a bank teller for ten years. So, the real question is, have you been a, have you been a 
have you done like 10 years work experience or is it one year's work experience repeated 10 times? You know, like, so it's very different when you're doing the same job repetitively and you're doing, like if you're just a cashier and you're working 12 hours a day or 18 hours a day, you're not going to grow. Like that's not going to happen. It's the same repetitive function. If you're doing non-repetitive work functions, but you're doing 12 to 16 hours a day of that every single day, your mind expands, you grow, you're learning, build businesses. And, and so the, the, the job function is very important. To, so as a CEO running a company, if you're working 18 hours a day, you know, five, six, seven days a week, uh, yeah, you're probably going to grow much faster than someone who's only doing eight hours a day and not, is not a CEO because the, 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 the scope of work is just different. Well, so on so, that note, you're, you're yeah. still CEO of, of Civic, but you're also... Like you said, you're 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 a partner at, at two funds, MultiCoin and Newtown mm-hmm. Partners. Um, but I want to talk about the Silicon Cape Initiative because that's 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 a, a nonprofit for you. It's an NGO. Um, what gave you the idea to start that, and what type of things are you doing to help um, South Africans, especially in in the Western Cape, kind of harness that that energy and the skills that they have to really um, to grow financially, but also you know psychologically too. I spend about uh, about two three weeks a year in South Africa at the moment, um, and when I moved here to the U.S. in California in two thousand eight, I I you know I just realized there was this lack of a rally point. There was no like ecosystem rally point in Cape Town, in particular. Well, why so, not though? Well, just it was just tech was just very nascent back then, right? It was just like not you know because it wasn't a very profitable industry from the software startup side. There was just you know the, the industries that were that evolved there were focused on other areas, food, tourism, etc. And so I started making some investments there and helping our companies. And I just realized that they just didn't have a, it just wasn't a rally point. And when we we launched Silicon Cape, we planned to have thirty people in a room, and then we we you know we had so many people trying to jump on board. It went to one hundred and thirty people, and then we eventually went to five hundred plus people. We eventually had to hire out the biggest venue in this course of like two weeks. Wow! Um, and we had this huge event. People people pitched up there. Um, and we launched Silicon Cape, and myself and Justin, my co-founder, we, we, you know, we basically said, look, we committed to, on a twenty-year vision for what what happens in South Africa. And I kind of stepped down from the board after the first year and let the, the locals on the ground run it, and they've been doing a great job of it over the past decade or so. Um, and you know, my contribution has been to set up a VC fund there that invests locally. My partner, my partner Lou, runs it, and. Um, you know, I just think that it's it's good to have uh, you know a network effects. Better network effects was good for the area. People knew who was working in it. You, they could connect each other and help. And it, just, it was a very like strong camaraderie that developed down there. And uh, South Africa has become a, a mini tech hub. At least for Africa, it's a it's a large tech hub. But um, the startup community is growing and it's, it's thriving. I think there's some, there's some really good exits. For the company it's one of the companies I invested in. I was the first investor in. Was congratulations. Big yeah, thank you. Sweep South was a uh, uh, this is a good example. You know, female black entrepreneur in South Africa starting a business. And she, you know, they hadn't. They, you know, I was literally the first check in. I helped them grow it the first year or so. They had major financial difficulties and put in bridge money, etc. Eventually, you know, now they're employing twenty thousand um, black female, uh, you know, workers. It's it's a it's um uh what do you call it? cleaning service. And they, they provide for 20,000 families in South Africa. If you think about it, it's an amazing, amazing task. Like in five years, they've gone from zero to creating 20,000 low-income jobs in South Africa, which how, is much, much needed in the country. How close are you to, to, to the CEOs of these companies that you invest in? Because this is the second time that you've told me that a project you know, was successful, then had financial difficulties, then was successful. So it seems like that you know, your, 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 your CEOs are willing to like talk to you about when they're having problems. How do you approach problems like that? And, and, and how do you maintain yourself as approachable that they're not afraid to talk to you as the investor when times are hard? I mean, I, I like, I, I, I was very close to them. I, you know, I met them at a conference. I was the judge on the panel. And then afterwards we built a good relationship. My Lou sat on the board, my partner. And so we were close to them from that perspective. And, you know, they would come to Silicon Valley. They would come, you know, Hang out with me there, take them for dinners, etc., um, and learn a lot. And they were just very open to learning, and I think that's an important part. When you like, when you when you open to learning, it really helps. Um, and no, I mean, I, look, as an investor, I care, and I'm, I'm approachable, and I I, I think it's uh, important that investors are supportive. And you know, often you just have to believe in the people because the numbers don't always make sense. And so, if you believe in the people, you can you can get to sort of 
good outcomes and and sometimes they just need a few more months runway sometimes people just need six four months or 12 more months that's a good point sometimes they just need some time to to develop what they're building yeah exactly so I mean, where do we go from here in terms of crypto? So obviously I get people on the show. They tell me, yeah, I'll massive bubble 100K. We, we talked, we had a very good conversation earlier in the show. Um, where do you see, um, I have two questions for you. Where do you see, you know, the, the price, you know, and I really hate that question, but, but given your opinions, I want to hear it. But if we were to, if we were to completely take the price away right now, and I asked you, Vinny, what's the state of the crypto industry and no price existed. No price existed. Where are we at right now? It's hard to say. I, I think there's heavy resistance levels at twelve thousand, as we can see. I, I tweeted that out before it even hit there. Um, and and twelve thousand is a big resistance. I think you probably find a lot more of a gap between twelve and twenty thousand. But twenty thousand is going to be major, 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 major resistance. I don't see us breaking it before having. Um, maybe after, but before having, almost certainly not. But you know, you never know. Um, after having, I think the halving the next year is, is going to be a little bit more placated than the previous times um, because the, the inflation rate drop isn't that significant compared previously. Like the previous inflation rate drops were quite significant. This one's less, so it still will have an impact. Uh, it will have an impact on minor costs, so there is some potential fallout there. Um, uh, I, I think next year is going to be the toughest year for Bitcoin uh, in many in many respects. Uh, going through You're not the first person to say that. Can I tell you that? You're not the first person to say really? that 2020. Okay. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. You're you're definitely not the f first person to say that. And a lot of people have come onto the show and say 2020 is going to be one of those years that we almost like, it's just going to be a lot of work, a lot of grit, a lot of fear, mm -hmm. a lot of doubt, and a lot of n nervousness. But if we can get through the next year, um, everything will look really good on the other side. But yeah, I almost feel the same way. I feel like in twelve more in twelve months' time, it's going to be we'll, we'll know where this is all going. Yeah, um, I want to uh, accumulate, yeah. so I'm okay with that. Yeah, and the real question is: Are you going to accumulate at these levels or lower or higher? <laughs> and no one knows, right? So, so I I just think that it's going to be a very like there's a lot of dynamics that happen around a halving, and the last point. halving, the, the the last couple of halvings have been on the back of strong forward momentum. And if the market stays depressed or goes down into a halving, it I mean, look, we all know there's technical and security risk with Bitcoin around a halving. I mean, always. It's, it's never, it's, but it's never actually, the markets have always protected it. And the real question is, are we at the level now where the market can protect Bitcoin with this halving? Who knows? I, I don't know. Um, I think we, it's safe to assume that it probably will, because it always has. But I, I never liked living in the past and saying just because something always happened, it will happen in the future. So I, I think it's it's good to keep an eye out. Um, and I don't want to go into all the you know potential outcomes and this and that uh, that that could happen. But there are like Bitcoin is not a risk-free proposition yet. It may be in the future, but it just isn't right now. And, and many people think it is. And that's I think it's kind of foolish to think that we could go. Uh, we we can that that Bitcoin like. Some people are religious about Bitcoin in the sense that they it cannot fail, and even people like Wences believe it can fail, right? And and he's a you know he's a Bitcoin bull. Um, I mean, look, him and I both supported the Segwit two X movement, and he got a lot of flack for that. But at the end of the day, we still believe in like what the, the what what we hope evolves over time with you know global decentralized money solution. But I still think there are significant risks. Maybe I'm a little bit more paranoid than other people. But um, I don't think the risk is zero. I don't think the risk is zero either. And I agree that, you know, you should always you should always understand the risks versus the reward of anything you're trying to do, whether that's an invest. And I think we're very far away. I think Bitcoin and crypto, this whole industry, I mean, it's less than 10 years old. I'm talking about the industry, not when, yeah. when Bitcoin first launched. There's a lot of years that need to go. There's a lot of mistakes that need still to be made. There's a lot of breaking that's going to happen. There's a lot of figuring it out because you're a believer in free markets, but markets aren't. Markets are efficient yeah. when we allow them well, to be. Well, they're not always free. Take markets time. aren't always free. True. Markets are manipulated as well, so they're not always free. Vinny, thank you so much for taking the time for coming on the show. I think um, you have a great history, and you definitely open up the ears. You definitely open up my ears, and you open up a lot of ears to people. Um, that are listening to the show. You're the CEO of Civic. And for people who do not want to live in an echo chamber and to want to hear things that they may not agree with or things that they that they probably will agree with, how can people follow you? Follow me on Twitter. I mean, I've been a bit quiet lately and I haven't written any blog posts for a while. You got to uh, get back just, on that. 
I'm I'm just saying I'm just staying out of it right now. And like I said, like I think I'll be a lot more active maybe in about nine months' time. Uh I want to see how things play out over the next I think we're heading for a very dangerous period in the next nine months in crypto. And so towards in twelve months from now I'll be a lot more vocal and et cetera. But right now I just I, you know, I've had a lot of flack and I'm just like, you know, I don't need this. I don't I don't need to be sharing my views uh, as actively as I used to because um and I'm you know, just because I think it doesn't benefit um people I wanted to benefit anymore because of you know just where the market is a lot of people are just not following anymore anyway that's a good point you can get a lot more value out of speaking to these people directly with your opinions than if you were to post it online or whatever not everyone is deserving of your opinions Vinny that's why I do block people and a lot of people who were blocked during the late 2017 run they probably lost money because while I was telling people hey this and this is kind of crazy uh, they weren't listening and that's fine you know and so I, I I'm happy not to share uh, you know, cast pearl into swine, so to speak. Um, and not to say everything I say is like you know brilliant, genius, or correct. It's just it's not about that. It's about look, not living in an echo chamber. Listen to other points of view. Sometimes they're right, sometimes they're wrong. Form your own opinions, do your own research. But you know, you sh- in order to do that, you need to be exposed to all the different views out there. And I think people who have a closed mind, you know, nothing you can do can open it. And I, I'm happy to sit back. But like for now, you know, I, I obviously part of Multicoin. I share my views with Alan Tashar on a weekly basis. We have our weekly call. Um, we've done really, reason, you know, reasonably well as a fund. So I think you know we're doing something right. Um, but uh, generally, I just I, I feel less and less a need to share my my views in crypto with the world right now. And that may change in a year from now. But uh, let's get through the dangerous period first. Well, thank you so much for sharing your views on this show. Um... And I think after listening to the show, people are going to want to hear what you have to say. So I hope you see an increase in follower count. You will. Thanks. And I hope people can and, <laughs> and, and, and Charlie, if I, have blo- if I have blocked anyone who wants to be unblocked, it's just, I ask them just to just have a friend message me or something. Yeah. Uh, and, and, Don't and fucking just, unblock them. You do whatever you want. It's your Twitter. No, no, I'm, happy to give, <laughs> I'm always happy to give people a second chance. And I've unblocked people before. And if they want to be unblocked, that's totally fine. Just send a message and just be respectful and don't post rude comments. I'm fine with it. Amazing. I'm Charlie Shrem, everyone, and you've been listening to Untold Stories. Thank you. How do you actually live your life on crypto? How do you spend Bitcoin? How do you live and actually help continue to grow this ecosystem? Since 2016, so for over three years, I've been personally using the BitPay prepaid Visa card, and it's amazing. So check it out at bitpay.com forward slash card. That's bitpay.com forward slash card. You can also buy gift cards from over a dozen merchants in the app itself. So it's pretty easy. You get the card in the mail, you activate it, you download the app, you send some Bitcoin to the app, and you load the card into dollars with your Bitcoin and then spend it. It's so easy, it's so convenient, and I've been using it for a few years. Check it out, bitpay.com forward slash card. New episodes go live every Tuesday at 7 a.m. EST. Links to our Apple and Spotify channels are in the show notes. You can also follow me on Twitter, Charlie Shrem, to continue the conversation. See you next week.